When I first uh, became a Christian, I would go to church and listen to the preacher. And uh, I was always surprised about how often it felt like he was talking directly to me. And uh, sometimes I wondered uh, if, I, if my problems were just like everyone else's or if the guy was talking to my parents and tailoring his sermons for something I needed to hear. Uh, now, as a preacher, I still hear the same things. I, I just, just last week, I had someone come up to me and say, sometimes it feels like you're talking directly about me, and I just want to promise I never do that. Well, I just did that, so I was talking about you <laughs> uh, just now, but generally, when it matters, I'm not, not that that didn't matter. Never mind, I'm going to move on, but uh, the, um, there's something profound about when when we are all hearing the word of God, it hits us in new ways. And I think that comes from two different things. One, I think it's just the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit, right? And that, that no matter what we read, and you've probably done this too, when, you, when we ponder the word, when we preach the word, when we read God's word, it speaks to us in different ways because we are in different places every time we approach it. And there's, there's something alive in Scripture. There's a Holy Spirit in you. There's a Holy Spirit in the Scripture that allows us to grow. When we can read the same thing over and over again, all of a sudden it means something new to us. Uh, one of the big things in my life is when I became a father, just the very idea of God being my father and him loving me with the father's love became more real to me than I could ever imagine because I was a father. And I thought I could understand the love of a father until I became a father, and I went, oh, this is new. This is awesome. This is different. And it helped me understand God's love, so when I would read that, it meant something different to me. I think there's two reasons that we, this happens. There's two reasons. One I mentioned is the power of God's word and power of the Holy Spirit. But I think the second reason is we are way more alike than we are comfortable with or aware of. We are going through similar things. We have similar fears. We have similar anxieties. Um, we can have different opinions, but have the same anxiety and fear. And it becomes this universal truth about us that we all struggle with the same things. But there's these certain things that we all struggle with that we never talk about. There's things inside of us that we just don't share. There's convictions we have. There's things we believe about ourselves that no one ever speaks to us and we don't share. And those existing inside of us uh, and, and, and the awareness of that has created this thing called the Barnum effect. I don't know if you've heard of the Barnum effect. You may have heard of P.T. Barnum, uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, P.T. Barnum would go around and he would read people's aura and give people a, a, a word about themselves. And, and the idea of the Barnum effect is just these statements that we, we ascribe to uh, something that is very accurate about ourself and it feels very tailored to us. And it's something, something we feel like, oh, that's unique to me. And uh, I'm going to give you a few of these things. I call them Barnum statements. And these are how uh, horoscopes and reading someone's aura and fortune telling and some of those non-psychology based or non-science based personality tests, this is how they work, right? They make these Barnum effect statements that sound so unique to us because we never talk about it and we feel like we're the only ones. Here's one. Imagine someone saying this to you or getting this on a fortune cookie or reading this in your horoscope and going, oh, I am a Scorpio. Like, okay. You pride yourself as an independent thinker and do not accept other statements without satisfactory proof. 
yeah. I pride myself. I am an independent. Every person thinks they're an independent thinker. Like, think about the opposite. No one says, no, I'm pretty much a lemming, and what everyone does, I do. When anyone tells me to do it, I do it without question. Nobody. But that sounds so personal, and there's something we're so, we feel so strongly is the value that we have. We go, yeah, that's me. Here's another one. You have a tendency to be critical of yourself. Okay, how many of you, if you and I were meeting, and I said, you have a tendency to be critical of yourself, you would be, oh, Pastor Mike, you know me so well. Right? That is something universal with all of us. We are all too critical of ourselves. How about this one? You have a great deal of unused capacity that you haven't turned for your advantage. Do you feel that? There's so much in me. I could be doing more. If I could only, then I would. It's these vague statements that sound so viscerally important to us that we claim them, and they sound unique. But all of these perceptions, all of these things that are universal, uh, are commonalities that we all share. And that's strangely comforting to me. So when, when someone comes to me and they talk to me, I am, as a, as a pastor, I think I have a unique view because I hear the same fear, especially right now in our world, the idea of the pandemic and masks and vaccines and non-vaccines. I hear the arguments from both sides. And it's the same fear behind it. And so I get to address the fear. And what I've learned, and the the more I do this, the more I learn is we are more alike than we are different. And I believe that having the proper view of God is the solution to all of our problems. And I don't mean that to trivialize the problems. Uh, But we're going to talk about the right view of God and how that relates to worship and scripture today as we continue in week four of our Rhythms series Um, Let's pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we get to gather today. I thank you for our faithful church online that gathers every week to to, uh, meditate on your word and to share and to chat with each other and to connect. Uh, God, I believe a church is a group of people moving in the same direction. And so I thank you for these moments where we can gather online in groups and in person where we can all be moving in the same direction, sharing in these rhythms together. Thank you for uh, establishing us and and, uh, being with us and drawing us together. Let your word today ring true and resonate in our hearts and and motivate us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I just made a bold statement. I believe that all of our problems, the solution to all of our problems is cultivating the proper view of God. And and originally I put cultivating a high view of God, but it's not, we don't have to manufacture the high part. Like, it's proper. He is, right? And so cultivating the proper view of God. And we cultivate that in our hearts because it takes intentionality for us to remind ourselves who God is. See, when we have a small view of God, which is, I believe, the biggest problem of the church today, is we have a, a view of God that is way too small. You know, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, do you fear death? And I said, no, I don't fear death. And I I honestly don't. I do have some fear that 
uh, and I don't know if it's fear, it's just, I don't know what it is, but uh, like when I'm gone, who will do what I do? I, I don't think there's another human that will love my wife as I do. I don't think that's possible, and I get nervous. She won't be loved on earth, but then I trust God that he will, he will love her. He will be there for her, just as he has been. No one will love my grandson like I do, but so I fear him not having that in his life. But God will raise him. God will provide for him. So, so I don't know if that's fear. It's just this thing, this reasons why I don't want to leave. <laughs> right? And Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't fear death. The, the fear, and, and I think it's, I've cultivated this high view of God, and I think it's a gift of God that the very first thing that we are, are introduced to as a promise from God is eternal life. We're promised eternal life. And what does that do? That takes away the fear of death. Wow. Imagine if we had the right view of God in everything, it would take away the fear in everything. And if death is not to be feared, what else is to be feared? If death itself isn't to be feared, what else is to be feared? But when we have a small view of God, we get more concerned about what God is going to do for our purposes rather than what we are to do for God's purposes. We become ungrateful to God we believe that God was created for us instead of us created for him. We, we, we adopt this judgment of God. And, and before you say, I don't judge God, have you ever been in a situation that you see and it's very difficult or you see someone suffering and you say, where are you, God? Because you've judged that God should be doing something about this. If you look at the world hunger program or, or, or problem in the world today and, and you go, God, if you're so great, and so loving, why are there starving people? Why, when I look around, why is my church struggling? Why are people in my church struggling? God, where are you? Why is my neighbor going hungry? God, where are you? As if someday God is going to sit before our judgment seat and we're going to ask God, where were you when, when in reality, one day each one of us is going to sit before God and you know he's going to ask you? Why did your neighbor go hungry? Why was your church struggling? See, if you don't exist, God continues to exist. If God doesn't exist, none of us exist. Right? We were created for his purposes. He wasn't created for ours. We don't sit in the judgment seat of God. He sits in the judgment seat. And that's not to drive this fear and panic. That's just to drive that, look what he did with that judgment seat. He was faithful to justice, and he deemed you forgiven and free by the power of the blood of Jesus. So it's a celebration because he's a good judge. He leaves judgment up to Jesus, and Jesus says you're forgiven. So let's remember how great God is and how small we are. This happened with Isaiah. Isaiah, this is a really cool passage, partially because it's about uh, King Uzziah, who uh, my grandson's name is Ozias, which is a Greek, the Greek way to say Uzziah. And uh, King Uzziah was, is one of the great kings. He was a king of Judah. 
He was the ninth king, and uh, he reigned for 52 years. And he was a good king. At, at the end, he struggled a little bit with some pride, um, but generally speaking, for 52 years, he was a good king. And, and the nation, God's nation in Judah, was strong and economically powerful and militarily strong. And so, uh, society was good, and Isaiah was worried. And so it says in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, in the year King Uzziah died. So Isaiah was worried because King Uzziah died. And he was worried about Uzziah's son, Jotham, right, who would be the 10th king. And he didn't know if Jotham was going to be a good king or a bad king because the history tells us that when God's nation has a bad king, it goes really bad for everybody. And there weren't a lot of good kings. So King Uzziah stood out, right, as a good king. And just as he, in that year when King Uzziah died, God showed Isaiah something. And I love this. He says, I saw the Lord upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with the two he flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The, lo- the whole earth is full of his glory. Did you see that? Did you see what God's answer to Isaiah worrying about the king was? It was here, Isaiah, uh, let me show you the real throne. You're worried about this kingdom and this throne and and this king who's influential in the world and in the nations, and and you're worried about this little king here and and your cute little army, and look at your cute little nation there, and that's just a precious little thing. But let me show you the real throne. And wow. Isaiah sees the throne. And he uses this hyperbolic imagery language because you ever feel like the English language or just words are just so inadequate to express something? Like, tell me how to uh, express my love for my family. I don't know how to... Every word I say sounds inadequate. Words are just not there. So we use these metaphors and these images of the most extreme things that we know. But the answer for Isaiah when King Uzziah died. God's answer wasn't to drill down on who, what the succession line was for the next king and tell him how good Jotham was going to be and not to worry. He didn't even say, don't worry, Jotham's going to be good and there'll be times of struggle, but I'll be with you in the midst of your struggle and, and don't worry. It's, or he, could, he could say, which it did, he could prophesy like, hey, Isaiah, it's going to go really, really bad for you and you're going to suffer, but you're going to have to accept that because I'm God and you're not. Like, he didn't, he didn't drill down into the problem with Isaiah to help bring him peace. He gave him perspective. And he said, because, because think of this, if he would have just kind of placated his fears about Jothram, the next king, when Jothram died and Azra took over, he would have had to do it all over again about Azra. But if he reminds him who's on the real throne, It doesn't matter who the king is and how that changes. God's on the throne. So if he has a high view of God, it calms him and brings him peace. That was Isaiah. I love this. Look at Ezekiel when Ezekiel sees God. Ezekiel 1, 26 and 28 through 28. He says, 
Uh, he's talking about seeing God and being brought into God's presence, right? And this is, this is so awesome. I, and why, why I kind of read this kind of uh, as if Ezekiel is a friend of mine trying to explain something he saw with words that seem so inadequate, right? And so I'm going to read it that way. So forgive me, God, but I think, I think this will help prove the point, right? It says, he says, uh, and above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a, a throne, throne maybe yeah a throne and in appearance like sapphires like yeah sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a a human a human appearance because it wasn't a human being it wasn't it was a human appearance and upward from that what appeared of his waist was fire like I saw gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward I saw the appearance below his waist appeared like fire too. I guess it'd be fire, right? I saw fire, and there was brightness. There was brightness all around him, and like the appearance of a rainbow in the in in the clouds, color lots of colors and brightness. In, in, in the clouds. On the, and so the appearance of brightness was all around. And then he says this, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And I, I don't know, when I saw it, I just fell on my face. Like, <laughs> I just fell on my face when I saw it. All right, that's, I gave you the words that I could find. And uh, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of the one speaking. The awestruck response to just being in the presence of God. Do you think that for one second when Ezekiel was experiencing the, just the dim image of the presence of God himself, he was worried about the blister he got on his foot from walking so far in the desert? Do you think he was worried about paying his rent that month? Do you think he was worried about Uh, who the next king would be? I promise you, if you elevate God to his status, your proper response will be to worship him with all you are, all you have, every moment, every second, and the tools that our limited bodies are given to worship him with will seem inadequate. Your acts of service, your worship, your giving, your generosity, your kindness, your sacrifice, it will all still feel like it's just not quite... And what you'll be end up with was, I just, I want to keep worshiping you, and all I can do is fall on my face because you are that great, oh God. That high view of God puts things into perspective and gives us the peace, no matter what the situation. The right view of God. So when we approach God and we cultivate this view of God, we, we bring ourselves out of worshiping the world. The thing you give your, your heart over to cause you worry is the thing you worship. There's a lot of people worshiping a vaccine right now because they're trusting, they're saying, I will have peace if, 
Some people are worshiping masks. Some people, I'm not saying those are bad. I'm pro-vax. I'm, I think we should wear masks. and I, I'm not anti any of that, but I'm just saying I think we shouldn't be worshiping things that aren't God. And the things that give us fear are the things that we are worshiping. Perfect love casts out fear. God is perfect love. Because if we have this low view of God, we start to fear death. We start to fear what other people think. We start to fear things like offending people or hurting people's feelings. We shouldn't offend people. We shouldn't hurt people's feelings. But if our whole motivation is driven by avoiding hurting people's feelings, you can't speak truth without hurting someone's feelings, right? And so if that is your God, you will never say anything meaningful. You'll never share something worthy of worship because you'll be too worried about offending someone or hurting someone's feelings. And that's when we have a low view of God, we end up elevating something on earth like man. Can you see how this would affect the evangelistic nature of a church? I don't want to offend anybody with my religion. So we're just not going to talk about it. I'm not going to raise my hands when I worship because I don't want to offend anybody, make people feel uncomfortable. So we're elevating what other people feel over the natural response to the right view of God. Hmm. We buy into this thing like they have to like me in order to like Jesus. And so I'm going to comply with culture, and so they like me. Because, you know, worship is just off-putting. Responding with integrity with what you believe is not off-putting. It's honest. And I think that is the problem that all the non-believers I know and talk to, the problem they have with Christians, and even me in my past, is that I haven't been honest about what I believe about God. I had a friend who... uh, asked me that. He said, how come you never talk to me about your faith? And we've been friends for like 30 years. And I said, I I just don't want to impose. I don't want to impose. You have your thing and I have my thing. And and I had really underestimated his maturity and his willingness to listen to me talk about the most important thing in my life. And he said, he goes, I want to know what my buddy is giving his life to. I care about you. I don't have to agree with you, but I want to know about it. And it kind of opened my eyes that this assumption that I'm making that I'm I'm hurting my friends if I share what I believe with them, it's the very thing that makes them question whether or not I believe it. It reminds me of a video uh, that I saw. And have you heard of Penn and Teller, the comedy duo? Uh, Penn, Gillette, and Teller. Teller's the quiet, short guy, and Penn's the big guy who talks a lot. Well, after a show, uh, uh, Penn, Gillette, he... He does a video of himself in his room after a show talking about an experience he had at a show. And it's very telling, and I think uh, he's, very, he's known for being a very uh, straightforward, honest atheist, Penn Gillette is. And, and he's just very clear that he just doesn't believe and, and why he doesn't believe. And, and he spoke of this incident where after a show, a man came to him. And he said he was a, he was a, you know, a well-dressed, middle-aged businessman who didn't seem insane. 
Um, but he walked up to me and he said to me, he complimented the show and he was very grateful. He said I, he liked the way I spoke clearly and articulated my points. And, and then he handed me a small Bible from the Gideons. And he says, uh, and, and I took the Bible and the guy was just so genuine. He wasn't weird. And he just said, here, uh, I have this for you. And he had written some phone numbers and an email address. And he goes, uh, this has changed my life and I believe it will help you. Uh, if you read it. And uh, Penn was moved. He, he was moved by this. He kept talking about how kind this man was and how sane he, like he was surprised that a Christian was presenting God to him in a way that was sane. <laughs> uh, which is really a good, a, good, a good takeaway from this when you're talking about evangelicalism, right? Let's, let's do this in a way that's sane. Um, but he made a few key points. He said, I've always believed that if Christians believe what they believe, if they believe that they have found eternal life, and they're not telling people they love about what they've found, they either hate the people or they don't really believe it. And he said, I honestly don't see another alternative. And then he said, if you believe that I am going to hell, and you don't say something to me, how much do you have to hate me to condemn me to hell? And I think what happens in these relationships, we don't want to impose our view because we're worshiping the relationship instead of God. Because we're saying, I don't want to do anything to offend this relationship, so I'm going to not talk about God. Well, then the relationship is your God, and you care more about what you get out of that person than their eternal destiny. Think about that. That's the decision that we make. Now, I'm not talking about like uh, grabbing a bullhorn and going to the stadium and telling people to turn to Jesus or burn in hell. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Let's not believe the lie that we have to withhold what we believe in order to be appealing to people whose hearts haven't been transformed by the Holy Spirit anyway, right? So they're going to be, they're going to need to hear the gospel in our lives. And I think we've co-opted this beautiful idea that's been attributed to everyone. Mother Teresa primarily is who gets attributed to this, but many have said it. Um, but it's uh, uh, preach the gospel always Use words if necessary, right? And I think many Christians who have a fear of sharing the gospel or sharing, their, sharing Jesus with the people they love or even, even mentioning God or inviting someone to church or, or anything like that, they kind of hide behind this and they read it as uh, just be nice to people and don't ever talk about your faith. And what I want to emphasize is if that is a true statement, uh, which resonates as true, it's not scripture, but it resonates as something that could be true. Uh, let's not forget the latter half of that. Use words when necessary. Sometimes words are necessary, right? So let's not just say, hey, I just get to serve people and not share my faith. We have the expression of Jesus going on in our church that I want to celebrate today. Like we have this going on. We have our village uh, Village Resources, which is our, our ministry to the prisons in Oregon. Uh, right now, we have uh, our ordained minister, Chuck Seeley, is on site at Saniam Correctional Facility, filling in for the chaplain there as an interim chaplain. 
And what we do as a ministry is we help prisoners transition from incarceration to community by connecting them with local resources. We give them bikes, boots, backpacks, Bibles, and it has to start with a B, so mobile phones, (laughs) cell phones. No, that never flied, so we just give them cell phones. But we help equip them, but then we connect them to a faith community in the county that they're released in, which is the number one thing that reduces recidivism. That is thriving right now. That ministry is going really well. We have a missionary in Zambia right now who we have sent through team missions out there, and he is doing agricultural missionary work, and he's seeing lives transformed through relational discipleship, helping communities establish economies based on agriculture and trade. It's awesome. It's beautiful. We have our Stephen ministry going on right now where we have, uh, I don't know how many, we have many active Stephen ministers who are equipped and trained and skilled in helping people navigate life's crises. And we walk with people in a one-on-one setting through life and crisis where we get to be a presence declaring Jesus. It's beautiful. We have our food pantry that's thriving right now. Every month we're seeing more families that are being blessed by the food pantry. And we have a team that's leading that and taking charge and making sure we are an expression of God's love to our community. Look at all that this tiny little church is doing and it's profoundly beautiful. That is only possible because we have a high view of God. And every one of those ministry areas is an expression of worship. We are prioritizing God because he is worthy of worship. He's on the throne. When he says, love your neighbors, we say, yes, king, we love our neighbors. We don't say, well, I don't want to offend them. So I'm not going to love them. I don't want to assume that they have a need, so I'm not going to offer to help. We are God's people, and when we serve and when we love, we are expressing worship. And if we have that high view of God, the natural response is acts of worship. See, worship isn't just singing, even though singing is like the most personal way, I think, declaring God's goodness, whether it's reading, reading his character through scripture, singing words with somebody or by yourself. It is a natural way, an outpouring. And I like the way John Piper says it. He says that uh, worship is the completion of our understanding of who God is. It's the way, it doesn't make our understanding complete, but it's the natural next step to understanding how great God is. And, and you know this, and this is the challenge. Like, and our atheists and non-believing friends know this too. They know that when they see a movie that's amazing, they can't wait to tell you about it. They want to worship and express. They know, you know, when you go to a restaurant and it's an amazing meal and, and the chef is right there. Maybe he's the owner of the restaurant and the chef. You go, hey, can I talk to the chef? I want a compliment to the chef, compliments to the chef. When we experience something that's amazing, we have to give feedback. And then you go home and you start telling your friends about it. 
You can't not share that we went and saw this show or we went to this restaurant. You have to go there. You would like it. You would really like it. You have to go. We're not worried about offending people. Like, you have to go. You have to go to this bakery, but I'm not going to tell you because there's a 10% chance that you're gluten-free and I don't want to offend you. Right? All these excuses. But it is the natural, that's the type of worship that is the natural response from having the appropriate view of who God is. Now, we have lumped worship and scripture together, and that's for a reason, and, and here's why. We, when we have the appropriate view of God, we worship him. The key is we have to have an appropriate view of God. What defines who God is? Scripture. We learn about the character of God through Scripture because we can't, we can't worship the God that we hope exists. We can't worship the God that we want to exist. That is called religion. This is why I get viscerally just repulsed by calling what we do a religion because religion is man's construct to try to explain God, and we try to fit God into these confines and say, God can't do this because he is this, and the Bible says that, so I have to do this. And now all of a sudden we've relegated this awesome God that Ezekiel can't use normal words to explain, and we've kind of packaged him in this thing. We can't worship a God that we have conjured up in our own image. And, and before you say, oh, I don't do that, I want to say, hold on, we all do that. Let me explain. Uh, how many of you have ever prayed to God that, God, I pray that in my life you would cause my body to decay and my joints to hurt so I can learn a new way to depend on you? Now, God causes our bodies to decay. God allows our joints to hurt. And it, there is opportunity for us to trust in him, believe in him, have hope in him. But we would never pray that. We pray, God, I just, the suffering I'm in, I pray that you would just take it away all the time, forever. God, I'm struggling financially. I just pray that you would bless me financially. God, uh, this feeling of guilt and shame that I feel because I keep doing bad things, I pray that you would just help me never feel guilty or shameful again, no matter what I do. Like, this is kind of what we want to pray. Right? We want a God that alleviates our struggle and alleviates our pain. When if you look through scripture, all pain and all struggle has a purpose. Every religion starts with this fundamental assertion that suffering exists. And it has a purpose. So if we worry about, if we only worship a God that is his only role in our life is to alleviate our pain, fix our problems, solve social economic issues in the world, then we will sit in judgment of him when he doesn't do it. But if we believe that we worship a God that is way beyond we could ever comprehend, and we believe that we exist to serve his kingdom, that is where we find true life. That's where we find purpose. That's where our suffering has meaning. That's where we have hope in our struggles. Because he is a great God that way. I was watching this, uh, this series called uh, What If uh, by uh, Marvel Comics. And, and they, they kind of take this typical storylines of the Marvel superheroes. And they, they say, what if it was a little different? What if something, someone else became this hero? What if this one thing never happened? 
But there's one line in episode four that I heard, I think it was a week ago, but it was like right in line with our preaching today. But this one line says, there's a fine line between devotion and delusion. And I went, that's the line. That's it. Because I believe that uh, devotion is worship of the God that exists. That's devotion. Delusion is worship of the God I desire. Like the God that I conjure up. So why do we lean on Scripture? Because Scripture tells us who God is. When we look at Scripture and it describes God, it's forever, it's his character, it's who he is, and it allows us to worship the God who is because that's where hope is found. So many times people worship the vending machine God and they get, wonder why they're not getting the thing out of the vending machine. They're putting the prayers in, they're going to church, they're doing the things why aren't I getting the candy? When God is a God of relationship, he's a God of purpose. He has a plan, and we are part of his plan. And the moment we try to make God part of our plan, we have ceased to worship God, and we're worshiping ourselves. So I'm going to ask Heather to come up and, and go through our next rhythm that we're introducing today. And, and let me catch you up where we are in the rhythm series. We started with uh, silence before God. We recommend that you get alone with God and just be quiet. And for some of us, that's very scary. But these are those times where our hearts and our desire for God and God's desire for us meet up. So we get alone with God, we're quiet. And then we pray the scripture and we recommend starting with the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus was asked, how do we pray? He gave us the Lord's Prayer. We recommend that you get alone with God and you pray the Lord's Prayer, but you understand what it means and you make the words yours. You own the words. You're saying, I'm on board with, you are our Father, you are in heaven, your name is Holy let your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven and show me my role in doing all of that, God. Like pray that scripture and let it be yours. And then we talked about last week, reflection and confession. Like what do we do when we miss the boat? Well, we, we search our hearts and we confess to God. And when it starts to make us feel sick, we confess to one another and we are healed, right? And so we're building upon that with this next practice of worship and scripture. We will worship something or somebody. And there is one who is worthy of our worship more than anyone else, more than anything else. And that's the true God. And how do we worship? Mike shared that we, sh we worship God and his attributes based on what the scripture shows us about him based on what he reveals to us about himself, not what we want him to be. So that's what we're gonna practice this week. And the steps that we're gonna take are setting aside one day this week, set aside 15 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes, if you have that amount of time, to be alone with God or in a group of people with God. And we're gonna focus on his attributes and call them out and lift him up glorifying him in our heart. In other words, making him great and all that he is in our hearts. Um, we are going to work through a passage which is the same one that we're going to use for our benediction. 
So Mary's putting that slide up for us. It's 1 Timothy 1.17. And this is just one example of a Bible passage or a scripture that we can use to inform our minds and our hearts of the attributes of God. So you can find this all throughout the Bible. But um, in this passage, it says, to the king of the ages, in other words, he's on the throne, and of the ages means he's eternal forever and ever. Immortal, he will never die. Invisible, we can't see him, though he is, but we don't see him yet, but one day we will see him face to face. The only God, nothing else can compare with the almighty God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here in this simple verse, we have some specific attributes of God. And I'd like you to use this passage to um, really just let your heart and your words and your thoughts worship God. And then you can do this while you're sitting, standing, kneeling, even prostrate, which we read about. Um, sometimes there are no words, and we fall on our face before him. But we can use this scripture to guide us and, and just call out God's character and his goodness. And by doing that, um, we show him that we value him above anything else. And what we adore and what we focus our hearts, affections on, develops in us the kind of person that we are and the character that we have. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up and prepare to close this week. Um, I do pray and hope that you will lean into this practice of worship and worshiping God for all he is. And if this feels a little daunting to you or you have not experienced that, seek him and you will find him. He promises that if we seek, we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. He will be found by us. That's from Je Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's pray. Almighty God, You're holy, you're perfect, you always were and you always will be. And how unfathomable that you would create us and then love us and then give up so much to save us and then fill us with joy in your presence. You're so good. So worthy of our worship. So Lord, we ask that you transform our hearts as we take some focused time to worship you this week and show us your way. Give us your thoughts. Give us your words. And give us the courage to then speak your words regardless of what someone else is going to think. Help us 
do what you call us to do out of reverence for you, out of awe of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.